Hello, 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 folks. Welcome to this new edition of my podcast. Like I promised, we're going to have two in two days. One was the first one was an interview. This one's going to be an old fashioned podcast. I say old fashioned, but love, but yeah, we've been doing this for five, six years. So you can say old fashioned podcast. Hi, <laughs> oh. this is Adit Kapadia and joining me from an undisclosed location in the Eurozone is uh, <laughs> international affairs uh, commentator and the social entrepreneur Rushir Sharma. He is he's been a commentator writing on international affairs, global geopolitical issues uh, on various platforms like HuffPo, FirstPost, Rajya, uh, so forth. Um, he takes keen interest in uh, BRICS, European politics, international uh, terrorism, and has also written some fascinating pieces lately on the uh, social side uh, of things as well, on history and stuff. So um, uh, Rushir and I uh, converse on Twitter quite a bit, and uh, uh, we've been contemplating on having this podcast for a long time. So I'm so glad Richard could uh, uh, join in. Thank you so much for coming to my podcast. Uh, thanks so much for the very warm introduction and welcome and for the invitation to take part. I'm very excited. Yeah, I forgot the biggest and most important part of your bio. You're a fellow cricket. Oh, what was that? <laughs> indeed, indeed. I had a short-lived career in the German leagues. Achha, oh, I didn't even know you played it professionally. <laughs> well, uh, just a couple of, uh, of seasons. Oh, that's, that's, that's still awesome. That's still two more seasons than what I did. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I only count myself as an avid uh, watcher, observer and, uh, uh, you know, person who absolutely loves the game. But there, there was a there is this, you know, a podcast that used to come long. I mean, it still comes, but the original mm-hmm. uh, uh, podcasters were Andy Zaltzman, uh, who's a cricket satirist and John. Oh, yes, yes, he's. Yeah, and John Oliver, so everyone knows. So um, mm-hmm. it used to be called Bugle. And there was this episode uh, how John Oliver moved to US and Andy Zaltzman was telling him, like, did you, did you guys, uh, did you teach the Americans cricket? And uh, and he's like, why? He's like, uh, they, they have baseball. And he's like, yeah, but cricket is baseball for people with a brain. So, <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, and I was like, good God, <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something very funny like that. And, and, and if you go through Andy's uh, tweets, he, he has some various tweets like that. So, so that's uh, mm-hmm. my joke about cricket in a very civilized world. I, I watch some baseball also, but nothing beats cricket. So, yes, indeed. Uh, so without further ado, Ruchir, I think uh, we'll, we'll, the, the podcast, as our listeners, as you guys know, it's going to be freewheeling conversation about various global issues, uh, geopolitical issues, international affairs, US and India politics. So, uh, you know, we're going to try as much as we can, uh, but I can promise you it's going to be a good conversation and one you don't want to miss. So let's start with the whole India-China situation in a post-COVID world, right? Uh, today we are hearing that there's going to be further talks because China obviously is um, uh, doesn't want to withdraw the way it claimed it would. So how do you, you know, visualize that relationship developing? Because now you have the American angle as well, because China is perceiving, since India is getting closer to US, uh, you know, we're going to do something. But history has told us that it doesn't matter how close or far away India is from US, China will do what it will do with India, right? So what's your take on that? So I think that uh, the current uh, government in India started off with great optimism when it came to the relationship with China. Mm. And we saw this with uh, various uh, summits, with uh, various uh, confidence building measures. Mm. And uh, that was 
yeah, not as successful as uh, many in the Ministry of External Affairs would have wanted it to be uh, in the light of the uh, territorial uh, ambitions that the People's Republic of China has and is willing to act upon. Mm. And uh, this isn't isolated uh, to India. This is a series of claims that are affecting China's relationship with many of its neighbors, so Vietnam, uh, with the Philippines, uh, with uh, with India, of course, uh, hmm. even with uh, with Bhutan, or even uh, Japan. So, hmm? and even yes, Japan. And, uh, yeah, yes, and Japan with the with the South China Sea uh, dispute. Uh, this is causing quite you know a realignment and ruffling of feathers in. Uh, in the geopolitical sphere yeah. and China is a very uh, realpolitik oriented uh, country that uh, it has uh, waited uh, many decades now to build itself up into a position of geopolitical strength uh, and now finds itself in uh, a world where there is a uh, realignment taking place and are testing the limits of what's possible. So Bismarck said politics is the art of the possible and uh, China is uh, putting that to, to good use now. And fascinatingly, China is one country in a, and I don't think this is going to change in a post-COVID world as well, that has not given up on its expansionist tendencies. And I just find it incredible that so many in the West failed to point that out. Yes, uh, it's, uh, you know, from China's perspective, it isn't expansionism, it's, uh, it's revanchism, it's uh, making good after the century of humiliation, as they call the colonial period in their, uh, in their history. So for them, they don't even see it as expansionist, uh, they see it as, oh, this was always China, and now, you know, we have the ability to reclaim it. And... Uh, that's, uh, that's a point which uh, they managed to sell very well internally mm. uh, and something but, that uh, journalists <laughs> and analysts in the rest of the country uh, don't always challenge effectively. That no, and, and, and Richard, even if they don't sell it internally, it's not like they have a lot of protests going against that. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. When, uh, when your bureaucracy and uh, your socioeconomic elite are all members of the, the same party, yeah. then uh, I, you know, one can safely assume everyone who matters is on board. Ah, absolutely. So, and, 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 and for our uh, uh, listeners, I'll tell you, we, we certainly in the next, the, the, one of the parts of the discussion, we're also going to talk about those in India that still idolize the Chinese. <laughs> oh, <yeah. Excellent. laughs> Ideal, and I would say idolize and idealize them. Both, both are very problematic. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But moving sure. on to this, um, from that to almost what you talked about in your recent piece on First Post about, uh, you know, the Mughals and stuff like that. And the reason I'm telling you about is that you brought up an important point. From the Chinese perspective, they think that they are going back on colonialism. And that topic has been discussed a lot lately in the context of yes. Black Lives Matter, certainly with the context of India, where, you know, Indian history and many things like that. So how can you like just talk a little bit briefly about the exact points you're trying to talk on the piece? I mean, I would urge everyone to read it. But if you haven't, I just would like Ruchi to just give a 30 second perspective and then I'll delve straight into the questions. Right. So 
essentially mm. colonial historians in in india mm. have a, and you know this was in colonial times and they continue even now there's many of these white sahibs and men sahibs who think that they're big experts on indian history mm -hmm. uh they have a huge fetish for the mughals and the sultanate mm. uh and the aryan invasion theory uh and this comes out of a very cynical need that by portraying uh indian history as successive generations and dynasties of foreigners coming in to a country that has zero cultural military naval achievements of its own these people came and they successively civilized us civilized us civilized us as a big favor to us and this is a justification for uh colonial rule it's a justification for uh western advisory services being sold to our government even today neo colonialism oh, oh. so it fits into the stripping of any sort of cultural or civilizational revival and decolonization of our mentalities oh. by showing india as a passive civilization that has a history just of being invaded and then civilized Mm. and that causes many problems today yeah and especially with how the moguls are perceived right because there is also this weird sort of uh, 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 difference that these uh, left historians will try in differentiating between akhilji and a mogal right where um, mm -hmm. saying that oh xyz was born in india so he's different but abc was not born in india so it's different i i i i don't know like there could be varying degrees of brutality that xyz but we cannot deny that it wasn't brutal and it wasn't some golden age for indian you know indian civilization yes yes so well, some people try to re tell the past using you know modern uh, uh modern political debates to guide them hmm. and this is quite a cynical and uh, very transparently uh effort at whitewashing the past hmm. when you know we have official court chroniclers and historians from that period during the sultanate the, during the, the mughal era the original about, no the original darbari historians <laughs> yes the original darbari historians when they're saying that ex ruler was a proud turk and he went and destroyed this many temples and enslaved uh 50000 kafirs and then sent them up the hindu kush half of them died and then sold them for pennies in the in bukhara the slave markets of central asia mm. who are these historians today who don't read persian who don't read sanskrit uh who are basing their entire analysis on colonial era translations mm. of these original documents to say that oh that was all exaggeration these guys they were totally indian this is part of the idea of india they were so secular look how many uh, kafirs they they you know they spared mm. aren't they great humanitarians they were born in india that means they were indian there's not one source that says that these people saw themselves as indian they were very proud of their uh ancestry that they were irani turani uh turush uh, and this is you know problematic because it's whitewashing uh, history for one and two what is this saying about their mentalities today are they saying that all these illustrious uh, chroniclers and historians hmm. from the sultanate from the uh, mughal era were all lying so you know they say oh they were all exaggerating 
So then what does that mean? Either these people, like for 500, 600 years, every historian that was in uh, a court setting was lying and exaggerating. So by extension, you, Romila Thapar, you, uh, Irfan Habib, you have been granted access to the modern day Darbar. That means you're also lying. That means you're also exaggerating. And two, if they were exaggerating, let's say Minhaj Siraj and Abu Fazl and, uh, and the lot, uh, uh, Ziauddin Barni, they were all lying. Okay, uh, let's see. If they were lying, why would they do it? Because you're saying, oh, they did it to impress the ulema, to impress the clerics of the, uh, the faith, of the Islamic faith that uh, these courts adopted as their state religion. Mm. So then are you saying that, oh, enslaving kafirs, enslaving infidels, destroying the uh, places of uh, worship is so fundamental to Islam that they had to invent this in order to get into the good books of the clergy and to get their royal into heaven. So both of these positions are a form of bigotry. Hmm. It, it, it truly is. And, 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 and the, 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 what the point you raise is so valid that it's, there is just so much, so much discrepancy in the narratives of what these guys say as well. Like, um, hmm. You know, if, if you look at their own sort of assumptions that they are making, that itself doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, if I may give you an example. Oh, please. Uh, that we, we have uh, people from the CPI today uh, who, uh, who like to say, oh, the Mughals were so great. The, the Mughals made India rich. Uh, they gave this golden age. Uh, India's uh, GDP was 24% uh, of the global GDP under the Mughals, we reached our peak. Uh, but the sources of the time say mm. that uh, this was a horribly unequal system, mm. wherein the peasantry and uh, workers, uh, craftsmen were taxed into destitution. Mm. Uh, they couldn't afford clothes on their backs, while the kings lived lives of luxury and mm. were uh, yeah, showering the nobility with, uh, with money. Mm. And, you know, so this, it stands in contrast to the CPI themselves in 1947-98, mm. when they rose up against independent India, as well as against the Nizam's rule, with the slogan, Jab tak awam bhuki hai, ye azadi jhuti hai. So then, yes, well, in those days, mm. the public were starving, yeah. And the rich were hoarding all the money. So as good communists, you should say this was an unjust uh, rule. But, but, but isn't, they the, isn't the term good communist an oxymoron? <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, if you, let's say, as a person true to Marxist-Leninist <laughs> ideals, you should say that the Mughals were a period of great injustice and they should have been brought down in a Bolshevik revolution. Yeah. But, but no, because the reason why I say it's an oxymoron is because a lot of good communists stand up for, uh, say they claim to stand up for human rights, but that disappears when you talk about Mao or Stalin or their own left-wing mm -hmm. regimes in India, where human mm -hmm. rights, human, I mean, to, I, I cannot uh, translate this well in English, so I'll just say it in Hindi, when human rights ki thi, 
<laughs> because I, I really there is there is no way to translate that. But it's it's so fascinating because when I talked about those that idealize and idealize um, the Chinese principles, mm-hmm. Mao yeah. and stuff, the left would be there. That even after what they did in Ladakh, you had someone like a Sitaram Yechuri still say that um, very be very cautious of American going over to US. I'm like my God, China tried, you know all sorts of nonsense on your border and your first reaction is make sure you don't go towards us yes well, so, uh, huh. sorry go on when his uh, salary depends on keeping uh, a certain country happy and that that so, was the, in no, fact the reason for the C- i think the even split the between the cpi cpm yeah i think not just that even the relevance their relevance itself depends on how much they are because uh, what was it? There was this very banned CPI uh, thing, CPI ML that refuses to even recognize the Indian state and play, pledges allegiance to like I don't know some weird principles. Yes, the, those are out and out Maoist uh, uh-huh. Maoists and Axels who yeah. uh, operate in the forest and are waiting for. Yeah, but I have to tell you a funny story revolution. before we move on. There was a, you know, mm-hmm. N. N. Ram, the, the glorious uh, editor of Hindu, or the inglorious yes. editor of Hindu. He, um, he, he wrote this, he wrote, uh, I, I always, I questioned him on Twitter with a series of tweets saying, why hasn't N. Ram written anything on India-China? He writes on all other issues and when the India-China Doklam clash was happening, not Doklam, mm-hmm. the, the, in Ladakh, what was happening, mm-hmm. he, he was tweeting about the COVID cases in UK. And all that. He was tweeting every day right. some random things. Um, I was good. Okay, tweet about COVID in UK, but you, as an editor, one time editor, you have nothing to say on this, and suspiciously, only when it's China, you have nothing to say about it. So then, I don't know if it happened as a result of my tweet or something. 45 minutes later, there was like suddenly three tweets by N. Brown, which was just reiterating and copy pasting the external affairs statement. And it's like, I want heads on both sides to be calm and solve this issue. I'm like, mm-hmm. what sort of like, I mean, I understand analyzing the issue um, uh, objectively if you are a journalist and something. And a, but if you're not even analyzing that, how can you not even criticize China for having an expansionist tendency against your own country? That I never understand. Why are they not able to even criticize China? That is just unbelievable. Well, that comes uh, down to the infamous uh, split of the CPI into the CPI and the CPIM. Uh, this took place uh, in parallel to what was called the Sino-Soviet split during the Cold War, mm. wherein the USSR and its relationship with the People's Republic of China broke down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they accused each other of uh, revisionism, not being true communists, uh, and betraying the legacy of the revolution. Mm. Uh, and with that, the CPI in India split as well. And the classic CPI uh, still took its orders from Moscow, uh, mm-hmm. while the CPIM affiliated itself to uh, the People's Republic of China. Mm-hmm. And of the two, the CPIM is the more vocal, uh, is the more successful uh, in recent decades, both in electoral politics and on student campuses and uh, uh, in the world of academia and uh, journalism and they have a loyalty to the ideological leaders of uh, their whole party. The whole party was based on, oh, true communism is being built in China and not in uh, in the Soviet Union, not in Vietnam, not in 
Cuba, not in Yugoslavia, not in Albania, in China. In China, yeah, that's because maybe because also, uh, and, and we're analyzing here, I think maybe because also China was the one person to enforce it for the period of time it did. And they they had communism, but internally when it came to uh, doing business, they suddenly developed some sort of a free market system. Yes, and that reminds me of uh, uh, an interesting quote that uh, during uh, the late 80s, early 90s, as China was opening up under Deng Xiaoping mm. uh, and embracing globalization, developing what he called uh, uh, commun uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics mm -hmm. and uh, with the famous uh, saying that it doesn't matter if it's a white cat or a black cat, as long as it catches mice, it's a good cat. <laughs> so there was a, there was an interview with a leading luminary of the CPI in mm. Calcutta during those days, mm. and they asked him, "So look, uh, China is embracing globalization. It's embrace, embracing capitalism in the uh, uh, within the mm. uh, ideological uh, framework of uh, Maoist thought." Uh, what's uh, your opinion? Isn't it time for the Indian left front to also embrace this change, this new world that we're living in? The Soviet Union is changing, China is changing. And uh, they said that uh, our communism is purer than that of Deng. It's purer <laughs> than that of Gorbachev. This is there will be no reform. This is a brilliant quote. I mean, I cannot believe this. I can, I mean, I can totally believe this happened, but it's <laughs> just unimaginable. I mean, unreal. <laughs> yes, and 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 I've heard this internally in the party as well. Hmm. They're very scared hmm. of what happened to the so-called Euro communists. Hmm. So throughout the uh, the Cold War. Hmm. Uh, Western bloc countries also had active communist parties within a democratic system, like mm -hmm. India did. That uh, they abandoned armed struggle and they said, we're going to uh, win political power through elections, we'll uh, mobilize the, the masses you know, using the tools of bourgeois democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, the most successful of this was the Italian Communist Party. They did exceptionally well, uh, election after election, after 25%, uh, 30% of the vote. Mm. And then in the, in the 90s, they and many other left-wing parties in, uh, in Europe, mm. they restructured, they embraced globalization, they embraced uh, neoliberalism. They even rebranded, some of them became, so the, the old uh, Italian Communist Party became the Democratic Party. Mm. And uh, they, by shifting to the center, lost all of their mass support mm. and became seen as enablers of the yeah, new neoliberal consensus. Their own membership abandoned them, uh, their voters abandoned them. This is a very traumatic memory for Indian communists because they are obsessed with not letting that happen uh, in India. Yeah. Unfortunately, that has already happened for them. So uh, and in the last 10 years, we've seen almost a total vote transfer in West Bengal, for example, in the 2009 Lok Sabha elections, mm. the left front got a combined vote of 42%, the mm. BJP got 6%. 10 years later, in 2019, it was completely reversed. Mm. The left front got 6% of the vote and the BJP got 40. 
presumably. Yeah, right. And that was Bengal was the last bastion. Yes, Kerala remains, but the Kerala communism is also very different from Bengal communism. So it's yes, it is. It's it's within the CPIM too. There are two strands: uh, the 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 Pinrai strand and the Yechuri. Uh, and I, I would say Bengal communism is not even a Yechuri strand. Yechuri strand only exists in Delhi TV studios, where Yechuri goes <laughs> yes. with his best friends, and they give him all puff job puff ball questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So interesting. Very interesting. So moving from there to let's go to contemporary politics in US and India, right? Because mm-hmm. we, we talked about the ancient past and the contemporary politics and US is a, in a very interesting time in about 12 weeks, you know, guys, uh, pause for a moment for what I said, US actually has the national election in only 12 weeks. Because mm-hmm. in this COVID world of 2020, people are not even realizing how fast the time is going. So it's the 2nd of August today as we record. And uh, the first Tuesday of November is when it's going to happen. Uh, so far, it looks like Biden's in the, you know, running to win. And Trump's uh, statements of uh, saying that, oh, how can we have it if there is COVID or if they cannot ensure in-person voting, think about postponement almost seem to suggest. But let's not forget that this is this is the time where he swung the election the last four years ago. So, I mean, by of course on the till the counting day, everyone was like Hillary's going to win, Hillary's going to win. But uh, uh, Trump, you know, sprung a surprise as Pramod, uh, who correctly predicted on my podcast, reminds me every time we talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, do you see that there is a chance of the election in America changing? Or do you think- oh yes, uh, I, I wouldn't discount either uh, it going either way. No. These are notoriously difficult to predict nowadays, uh, as we've seen with Brexit, as we've seen with uh, the 2016 election, mm. that uh, a lot of the polling models have uh, become obsolete mm. in this uh, new environment. Uh, a lot of uh, the old uh, bankable uh, policies as well and uh, vote banks have changed that now people don't necessarily uh, see themselves as so oh, died in the wood uh, Democrats died in the wood uh, will uh, Republicans they're often uh, there were many blue-collar working-class voters who voted twice for Obama and then shifted to, to Trump simply because he promised uh, to bring back their jobs. All right. And this is what some people call the populism versus, uh, you know, tech- technocratism debate. I mean, Richard, in 2008, if someone would have tell me that 12 years after 2008, same-sex marriage would not even be an issue in America anymore in the election. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, it wasn't even an issue in 2016. Right, Trump is for same-sex yes. marriage, and as as was Hillary, and um, it's just amazing that has just evaporated within four or five years. And you had a president like Obama, who was opposed to same-sex marriage, who changed his view when he came to power, and then the Supreme Court passed a law basically legalizing it. And uh, you know, people made the noise and stuff, but five, six years, eight years later, everyone's forgotten about it. It's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's become normal. That's the new normal. Yeah, a lot of core Republican issues are right now. The only core Republican issue is obviously the church thing and the abortion issue. That is are the only two 
issues i think that evoke a emotional response uh, mm-hmm. the other the job thing you said is very pertinent because states like wisconsin michigan who had not voted republican in a long long time trump was able mm-hmm. to flip them not just with the obama voters crossing over to his side but also with a lot of obama voters staying home yes and and this is where we enter the uh, the debate between the politics of hope versus the politics of fear that uh, that trump during his campaigning in these uh, in these blue states full of working class democratic voters came and sold them a dream that oh we're going to make america great again we're going to bring back your jobs we're going to revive the coal industry and the steel industry uh, and uh, there's this bad guy china and there are these cheap immigrants from mexico and these were simple points very uh, put out there very effectively yeah. and it gave these voters something of a pull factor it was inspiring to them you know it doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether there was any substance to it or if it was just hollow he got the votes that he needed from them by offering them this dream whereas uh the very uh, staid and conservative messaging of the hillary clinton campaign was america is already great hmm. but if you had lost your you know safe unionized working class job and were reduced to working as a uh, you know, shop assistant at a Walmart, America was not great for you. And it felt insulting that this you know, rich person from New York came and lectured you about how everything is great and you know, keeping the status quo is great because, uh, oh, that other guy, you know, he's going to ruin this and ruin that. So people don't respond to the politics of fear. They respond to the politics of hope. Mm. True, true. That is true, and and that that is what it was. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the whole election was about that. It was actually Trump's message of jobs that got across more than anything. But the question is also Hillary represented a very tired politics. Like she represented the system, right? Bill Clinton yes. connected connecting to when he was a president was connecting to the lowest. Um, of the low, and I don't mean in social hierarchy. I mean in the economic hierarchy. That a person mm-hmm. who's working at a very menial job and anything like that, Bill Clinton was talking straight to that person and also assuring the CEOs that he was not taking their businesses away. The reason I say Bill Clinton as an example is he was coming after three strong Republican terms, two of Reagan, yes. one of Bush, and yet he managed to lead eight years. Of course, he. Followed with the Republican uh, George W. Bush, he managed to lead U.S. eight years very, you know, relatively comfortably. So uh, yes. Hillary did not exude that kind of. Uh, uh, I'm not going to say warmth, but she didn't exude that kind of sort of confidence that people would. Yeah, so that appeal, the relatability was. Ha, the relatability. Joe Biden does, but the age is a huge issue because, the, I mean, I. I like Joe Biden, but when I hear him speak, it's like rambling a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And yes. to a lot of people, to a young America or to even a middle-aged America, this does not bode well. And yes. I, that's not to say that Donald Trump sounds very erudite and eloquent every time he speaks. <laughs> <laughs> because, because he's far from that. But really, between both of them, if they are on a debate stage, I do see a possibility where Trump actually... Uh, wins over Biden very comfortably on the debate platform. And once that happens, once that momentum shifts, I mean, let's not forget Joe Biden was doing very poorly in three states. It took him one win in South Carolina to completely flip the Democratic race. 
right? So that could happen yeah. in the presidential election as well. It could, but then also the, it flipped the Democratic race because a lot of Democrats were being pressured into choosing, you know, falling behind a consensus candidate as quickly as possible so that you had a strong face to defeat the monster that seduced the nation in the uh, 2016 election. It, that, that's basically the mentality. With yeah, the yeah, their mentality uh, was like that. But, but the reason I bring this up, uh, Richard, is and then we'll move to Indian politics in the last part. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, that you have people like Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tayyab, who make very polarizing statements, right? Uh, and very ludicrous statements. Yes. It is, again, not to suggest that Trump is not making crazy statements, but I'm just talking from a completely analytical point of view, where they, and then you have someone like AOC and things like that. And so a lot of people are being forced to say that, okay, do I have to choose between the party that enables folks like, uh, you know, Ilhan Omar to say nonsense, and especially Indian Americans, there is no good choice because Joe Biden is saying things about Kashmir and these guys are saying things about Kashmir, which are thoroughly against the Indian position who they talk, talk about as an ally, but that, and then Trump is saying positive things about Kashmir and everything, but then you have sort of the weird conundrum on H1 visas, student visas and stuff like that. So there is no good yes. choice between both of them. No, there isn't. There really isn't. And, and that comes out of the, uh, the electoral system that the United States has that uh, ideally one should have, one could easily split the various candidates across five or six parties in the US. But because the funding is channeled uh, through two major parties, a lot of the exciting candidates are weeded out deliberately by the, uh, yeah. the party elite. Yeah. Yeah, so you have your Tulsi Gabbard, you had uh, Andrew Yang. Yeah. And you had exciting young candidates who had universally appealing policies that could reach out to both uh, uh, Democratic and Republican voters, but uh, they were seen as inconvenient. What uh, the party wanted, essentially the party is a vehicle for bringing the dreams of its donors to life, not its members, not its voters. So it comes out of the way that uh, elections work and politics work in the country, that the only way to make a party or a candidate dance to your tune is to own them. You need to uh, provide them with the kind of donations that, that forces them to pay attention to you mm. or promise to deliver them a block of votes that will be essential for them in getting the election. That's a form of neo-feudal patronage. And if you do that, then the parties are very effective at giving you what you want. The, the, the Republicans, you know, they have a very simple message internally for their membership mm. that if you want lower taxes, ease of doing business, and uh, certain positions on the cultural wars, so your anti-abortion, or you, know, you love the evangelical church in the South, then this party is going to act on that with a single-minded focus. It's not gonna get distracted trying to reach out to the other side in some spirit of consensus. No, they're very open and clear about what they promise and they deliver it. So people within the party are motivated. The Democrats are not as clear on that, but you can influence them using uh, the various tools that uh, are part of the system in the US. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So 
as we get into the closing stages of the podcast and my apologies ruchi if i have kept you longer than i promised i uh, not at all not at all when we, when we are having a good conversation time sort of goes out of the window and uh, exactly <laughs> i have my accompaniment a freshly brewed cup of coffee so as long as i have that i can talk for hours so, um, brilliant brilliant happy to continue uh, but so so let's you know end with indian politics because in this whole covid thing we our podcast we talk about a lot of politics but we've barely gotten a chance to talk about it because it's just you know that seems to be the last thing on everyone's mind uh, survival obviously in the covid scenario is the first thing and then the whole china thing has dominated the discussion and stuff so the conversations have been about that in politics if i if i was looking and i saw a news piece that rahul gandhi is being urged again by the top congress leadership to uh, resume the presidency of the party again and i didn't have, i i i rarely do these these days i i would prefer pieces over threads but i did a thread saying that the genesis of this lies in the post 2009 election results i actually went back and looked at a lot of clips you know where you had journalists saying rahul ready to lead and things like that a lot of them are sounding a very different tune now 10 years later because of course it is yeah. able to criticize uh, um, it wasn't fashionable to criticize the gandhis when they are in power but now mm-hmm. they criticize both narendra modi and the gandhi family and they claim that right now they can't criticize modi openly it was so funny like yes. <laughs> you do both right now but first you were only criticizing one side um so i think they convinced rahul gandhi that the prime minister's chair is his at one given point of time and even if he doesn't get it next election he'll get it by default any time he's not able to get it by default and he's that's frustrating so how do you view the state of india's opposition after this do you think they have a chance in hell with rahul gandhi as a leader uh not in the next election for sure but they they're playing the long game so you know this is why they keep calling him a young leader that they will keep trying and keep trying with him at the helm until he's well into his 80s mm-hmm. so he could be you know at a joe biden level of uh, <laughs> incapacitation and That's- become prime minister and the congress working committee will still say we did it it was all worth it because at the end of the day the party today so the the congress is not the same indian national congress of alan octavian hume or of uh, tilak or of uh, gandhi or of nehru it has been split and mangled and chewed up and spat out mm. since the 60s and this is you know the side faction that uh, indira gandhi created and has just appropriated this history at the end of the day this party is simply a family run business so of course they're not you know going to give it you know give the top position to anyone who is not a blood relation no, uh, it's I was, thinking, i was thinking first time he he uh, fought his election from amethi that was 2004 16 years ago he was mm-hmm. 3 years older to what i am right now right and i don't think i mean i don't think i'm like a newbie right but he was presented as a newbie mm-hmm. and for 16 years or for 20 years if my family still keeps calling me young i'll be like what the hell guys i mean you know so um, both both him and salman khan never age it, it, <laughs> <laughs> uh 
but but both have varying degrees of invincibility uh, if you ask their loyalty <laughs> although i would say the congress, the loyalty of bhai fans and the loyalty of congress committee working fans are, is very similar they yeah, don't there's a there's a significant overlap in the venn diagram of the uh, <laughs> fans and, uh, and salman khan yeah so, so I, I i i just don't know if salman khan would like a manishankar ayer <laughs> defending him or not in the next few Uh, days, but the reason I bring this up is because you had the whole Sachin pilot scene. You know, it that almost yeah. like it was gone way. The Rajasthan political thing. There's a floor test coming up in ten days, and mm-hmm. but then this this week there's also the Ram uh, Janm Bhumi Bhumi Pujan where Yogi Adityanath and Prime Minister Narendra Modi are all going to be there. So yes, a fantastic paradigm shift that you are having a lot of dynasties who are being challenged. you are having sort of a churning within the grand old party of india which is the congress party uh, or if, if i may say his, be historically argue, accurate this is congress i indira congress in 1971 yes. the original was congress yes. o which then part of it merged and everything but yes. there is sort of a churning going on so do you think there is going to be sort of a um, anti dynasty mood within the congress party and i don't mean just rahul gandhi anti state dynasty mood. because i don't see amrinder singh's son being anywhere close to the uh, chief minister's chair in punjab and maybe that is why amrinder is now saying after claiming that he doesn't want a second term he's saying i'm okay for a second term well it's uh, it's risky to be within the party and be anti dynasty your life expectancy goes down significantly if you take that position very dangerous uh, thing <laughs> i mean your political life expectancy but then you know there are many uh, people within the party who will also say uh, you know i don't want to have an inconvenient uh, helicopter crash like uh, you know anyone else who built up a power base in parallel to tenjantat so uh, if you you know are to take a position in the congress against the family there'll be retribution there'll be punishment so you only do this once you already have a plan b either to split the party in your particular state and make your own uh party identity mm-hmm. or by jumping ship mm-hmm. and we've seen both of these happen that's the only way out for someone who's frustrated with uh, the lack of upward mobility within the party because you get rewarded for loyalty not for ability mm-hmm. uh, like many family run businesses mm-hmm. <laughs> if you wanted uh, you know a clear career pro- uh, progression then you would work as an employee in uh, in the corporate sector not at a family <laughs> very interesting very interesting so uh, so that's that's the state of indian polity uh, before we get into the closing thing and we i'll give you a heads up which uh, we have this tradition in mind podcast that at the end of the podcast we always give a non political recommendation for people to read watch or enjoy or something which is you know not related to current i mean it could be related to current affairs it could be a mm-hmm. documentary a book a film streaming anything you've seen lately so we'll talk about uh, we'll just be prepared for me to come at you with that but before we sure. i have to talk to you a little bit about cricket because last week also there happened to be a uh, the anniversary 30 year anniversary of kapil dev doing a momentous four sixes and four balls taking on eddie hemmings oh yes 
India needed 24 runs to avoid the follow-on, and Kapil Dev he did it with four sixes. And Harsha, and the, uh, the guy on the other side was Narendra Hirwani, who Harsha Bhogle yes. eloquently calls that in a team of number 11s batting, Narendra Hirwani would still be number 11. It was he was that bad, <laughs> and mm-hmm. gets out the next ball itself uh, uh, um, right after Kapil does this. Yes. Uh, to a generation of Indians, uh, and I mean, I count. I I didn't. I barely watched Kapil Dev live. I mean, I was very very young when he did live. But when he did live, but I've seen clips and heard about his stories. To a generation of Indians who have grown up on Sachin Tendulkar and then post that Dhoni, where in the Dhoni era or Kohli era, India was almost very close to invincible in some matches and you know some formats and stuff and very you know powerhouse and stuff. When you had yes. people discovering these Kapil Dev and Tendulkar doing ungodly things as a cricket fan, what do you think about it? Like, isn't it fascinating? It's about a time when India was not that dominant on the world stage as well. Uh, you know, yes. our economy hadn't opened. And so a- anything like this would be like a huge surprise for us. Oh, absolutely. I'm very glad you brought this point up. And you know, we could do another, you know, one hour podcast just on this theme alone, because the the rise of uh, this cricketing culture in India is, is in parallel to finding our own self-respect and sense of worth in, yeah. you know, in the world, yeah, in, uh, so to speak. But... The World Cup in 1983 was you know, this big moment of arrival that you know this post-independence uh, generation was finally finding its feet. It was holding its own uh, up against uh, the old colonial master. That half of the appeal uh, in those days, uh, when we were not very strong in sports, half of the appeal in in hockey and in uh, in cricket and other sports was to show that we were equal to and with time better than the supposedly racially superior colonized. And then as these superstars were were born out of these moments, so you had uh, uh, Gavaskar, you had uh, Kapil Dev, you had uh, uh, Sachin Tendulkar. This mirrored the opening up of the, the Indian economy and uh, the globalizing society that was trying to catch up. Yeah. And Sachin in those days, in the 90s, was a wonderful receptacle of the aspirations of this new Indian middle class. That yeah. uh, he was of a middle class background, people found him relatable. Yeah. And he, you know, he wasn't physically very imposing. He was very mild-mannered and soft-spoken. But then, you know, on the battlefield, and, you know, for many people, sports is a civilized form of warfare. Uh, he, you know, showed us that, you know, Indians are not, you know, the weak pushovers who, you know, are famous for their moral victories and snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, he taught a generation to dream bigger. And uh, I think... There's a lot of parallels mm-hmm. in uh, the story, the saga of Indian cricket and that generation's political evolution. Yeah, absolutely. And the India, because suddenly you had the, 
cricket used to be played in big cities first. You had people speaking certain kind of, you know, that, and, and from there you had the sort of the middle class uh, families also taking up of big cities, taking up cricket, which was the 1983 team. And then slowly yes. from Sachin onwards, you had people coming from smaller towns and the game suddenly democratized in a way you can't even think of. And, you know, there used to be a time in Indian cricket where to get into the selection team and stuff, you had to pay a hefty bribe to your local selector and stuff like that. But suddenly now you have uh, uh, this thing and there's a, you know, journalist, Gaurav Kapoor, who actually said a very wonderful thing that the best yeah. thing that Indian cricket has done is make Rahul Gandhi, Rahul, not Gandhi, my God, Rahul, <laughs> Rahul Dravid, the, uh, in charge of the young cricketers. Because he said this thing, young school ka principally so he filters who comes to the top and that guy doesn't do anything for money and stuff like that so what he's done is he's made the most important rule in Indian cricket which is people can only play under 19 World Cup once so that fudging of certificates that used to happen to ensure that you appear older or younger than who you are that has stopped because who wants to now play the under 19 at 17 when you know that you only need one, you can only do one World Cup and you can try mm-hmm. again in two years when you are actually 18 and a half or 19, you know? Yes. And things like that. So, and I would add another uh, uh, enclosure, I would add one more point to 83. Just like 83, no, no one was expecting giving India a chance in hell. And that changed mm-hmm. Dodi cricket forever. Same happened in 2007. In the T20 World Cup, where India, no one gave India a chance in hell. I mean, Indians thought T20 was a joke. I mean, Tendulkar... Yes, they sent a B-side for that, yes. Yeah, and Tendulkar, uh, Ganguly and Dravid didn't even play. They said, this is for youngsters, but we won. And then IPL happened. And right now, the phase of the IPL is so much that when the World T20 got postponed to next year, the IPL got scheduled in its place. And that's going to take in a biosecurity bubble in UAE. Unbelievable. So... Uh, uh, truly interesting things. But uh, as all good things must come to an end, we are getting very close to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Ruchir, for uh, joining us. Any recommendations that you have for our listeners this week? Uh, So, yes, uh, relevant to what we talked about, about the opposition or lack thereof uh, in Indian politics today, uh, an evergreen classic is... uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, both uh, the series or the book, or the Indian adaptation, uh, G Mantri Ji. Yes, yes. Yes, uh, uh, that's a wonderful Are there episodes available of G Mantri Ji online? Um, Well, uh, Gurdarshan brought back, uh, you know, lots of things through popular demand over the (laughs) COVID lockdown. We can start a Twitter trend and uh, ask... uh, the honorable information and broadcast. No, but I, I don't think this was Doordarshan. I think this was Star Plus because I think uh, Pranoy and them produced this, but Farooq Sheikh and Jayant Kriplani were outstanding as the uh, two guys, uh, you know, as Suri Prakash Jaiswal and, the, uh, also, and then the, the uh, uh, bureaucrat who had to yes. this. You know, one of my favorite moments yes. from those is uh, they have wanted to delay something. And Jayant Kriplani very calmly says, Achha, delay karna hai. why don't we just committee mein dal do? Delay automatically ho jayega. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. indeed. No, so in the <laughs> absence of a real opposition, this is useful to know how, you know, even uh, embedded assets within, uh, within the bureaucracy who still have a status quo mentality can uh, 
uh, hijack or delay even the most well-intentioned policies in a more effective way than a party with 50 percent. Brilliantly put. I think that's a very, very important point. Uh, my, my recommendation would be uh, two shows I watched. One is uh, called The Twelve on Netflix. It's a Flemish show and it's dubbed in English. Okay. It's about uh, a mother accused of killing her own child and 12 jurors have to decide it. And it's told from the perspective of the 12 jurors. And how they oh, that's a nice narrative. Yeah, it's a fantastic show, and and it's not like Twelve Angry Men or a Grukahua Fesla. This because that just centered around them making the decision. I think this starts from the court trial proceedings. So mm-hmm. Very gripping. And the second show is uh, I just watched yesterday. It's a Hindi show called Avrod, uh, which is based on the Uri attacks. Uh, it was on. It's based on Shivaru's book. And how mm-hmm. India's surgical strikes were as a response. Again, um, brilliant show. I think Vikram Gokhale, who plays uh, Narendra Modi, is never mentioned explicitly, but I mean, he plays Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He gets the demeanor and the act pitch perfect. He doesn't try to mimic or anything, but mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably the best portrayal of uh, Narendra Modi I've seen on TV. What's interesting is that show takes a very different approach from that movie. So it's no melodrama, nothing. It's actually mm-hmm. a very strategic practical and geopolitical approach. So for listeners of our podcast, I guess, or people who like Ruchi's work, I think you, you might find this more appealing than the movie. The movie was good too, but the movie was theatrical too, because I mean, it was made for a big stage, right? This gets more sure. the nitty gritties of how it happened. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you for the recommendations. I'll yeah. be sure to look these up. Right. So uh, thanks so much for uh, joining this week, Ruchir. It's, uh, it was a terrific conversation. I hope to do many of these and including one on Indian cricket, maybe we get to do uh, soon. Maybe during the IPL, we'll have another one and do one on Indian cricket. Oh, yes. I, I would love to reminisce on uh, the 90s and 2000s uh, yeah. and uh, how they mirrored uh, the evolution of our society and politics. As exactly. Well. I, I, because I, I, I find it very hard to look for, to find people who are as crazy about Indian cricket and Indian politics so now that i've found one you you will be locked and loaded in the mind podcast not line up now <laughs> oh excellent I, I look forward to reminiscing about uh, nikhil chopra and uh, <laughs> nikhil <Mahati>. chopra, <laughs> no, chopra devang handi vijay bhardwaj yeah. neil joshi oh yes vijay bhardwaj a very tragic story but uh, his I, 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 career was shut cut short no, no, and then we have the uh, the very uh, infamous wicketkeeper uh, brigade, Sabakarim, MSK Prasad, Deep Das Gupta, Najer Atra. Uh, so oh yes, it's, it's, well, uh, 50% of them actually had talent. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I would say all of them had 50% talent. Oh. So, but I mean, I, I, I am being too harsh, but, but seriously, like you, you guys want to look at, I, I really, MSK Prasad ko to daya aati hai. That poor guy just got looked so bad with Bradley and Shane Wong just eating him to him when they took him to Australia. So I think, oh, yes. uh, sorry, my, my favorite uh, MSK Prasad the moment was uh, the moment that he got the uh, nickname Maska Prasad because he was butterfinger, <laughs> but uh, he was wicket keeping in the LG Cup in Kenya. Oh. And uh, he uh, he caught the batsman behind, and in his celebration, he threw the ball up, but it slipped through his uh, gloves. Oh. And the umpire had to rule whether it was a legitimate catch or not. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I, I, 
it's just unbelievable. And then one last thing, do you remember that MSK Prasad and Vijay Bharadwaj were celebrating and then he didn't even know he went for a hi-fi except he, Vijay Bharadwaj didn't have his hand out and it hit him in the wrong spot and Vijay Bharadwaj fell down in pain. So, oh yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's just amazing stories of Indian cricket. That, that was a very fascinating series. We could do a podcast just on that specific series that and specific uh, series the so memories of that. Absolutely. But thank you so much for joining Richir. Uh, here's hoping for very more conversations very soon. <laughs> thank you. So Likewise. Much. Th- thanks so much for inviting me and for the great conversation today. Absolutely.